Aren't we blessed at Mount Olympus Presbyterian Church? Aren't we blessed with wonderful people who lead us um, each week? Thank you, Emily, for your beautiful music each and every week. And Heather and Jesse and the music band, the praise band, thank you so much. Um, and so many gifts that we have in our congregation. It's great. Thank you, uh, Candy, for your beautiful prayer uh, this morning, and Brad for sharing about your ministry. Um, there are so many gifts in this congregation, and, and it's a blessing for me um, to be a part of it. And I get the chance to see Brad on Thursday mornings um, in, a, in a Bible study, and so it's really fun to get to know him a little bit and to, and to hear about your ministry in, in southern Utah and in central Utah. Just a joy, so thank you for being here. Brad also co-teaches the Sunday morning class with uh, Ralph Paisley and Jim Cobb, and so a little plug for that uh, um, uh, on Sunday morning, so hope you can join that. For better or for worse, I will never forget Halloween night when I was in the seventh grade. There was uh, five of us, four of my best friends and me, and we were trick-or-treating in a really cool neighborhood near my house called Canyon Crest. Canyon Crest was a great place to go trick-or-treating because it was a safe neighborhood. There were tons of houses. They were good houses, and there were generous people, so you could get lots and lots of candy trick-or-treating in Canyon Crest. And on this particular night in seventh grade, um, I was dressed up as a ninja, um, but unfortunately my costume did not come prepackaged with self-defense skills. Um, we used pillowcases to fill up um, with candy so that we can maximize our opportunity to get as much candy as possible. You know how many pieces of candy you can put in a large pillowcase? A lot, a lot. And, and so several hours had gone by. We had been trick-or-treating, and, and my bag was about three-quarters of the way full. We were almost done when Cyrus came skating up to us um, on his skateboard. Now, this is going to sound a little bit like a Simpsons episode, but it's actually a true story. Um, Cyrus was the neighborhood bully. Everybody knew Cyrus. Um, either you were friends with him or you feared him. He was a junior in high school, and he was a large guy. And he came up on his skateboard, and he didn't look at any of my friends, but he looked right at me, and he said, Hey, kid, give me your candy. And I, I kind of thought this was like a joke at first. I'm like, who does that? Like, I was just saw this on The Simpsons two nights ago. And um, when I realized that he was serious, um, I simply said to him, well, why don't you just go get your, get your own candy? I've been working these streets for a couple of hours now. And he said to me, if you don't want this skateboard in your face, you better give me your candy now. And so I held out my pillowcase full of candy he grabbed it, and he sped off on his skateboard. And that was, that was that. I was crushed by this, right? Now, of course, in retrospect, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a bag of candy. My friends ended up sharing their candy with me, and candy's terrible for you anyway, so it was probably for the better that he took my candy. But it was the fact that it was rightfully mine, that he took it from me, and that he got away with it that he got away with it, that crushed me. When we gathered back at my friend's house on that night, we spent the night together, and of course, we, everyone dumped out their pillowcases full of candy, and they shared some of their candy with me, and I was you know, very um, pleased by that and felt loved and cared for by my, by my friends. But it was that night, my heart kind of cracked open. And as I looked around the world, or at least my little neighborhood, 
It was as though a whisper or a voice whispered into my ear, something's not right. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. Violence and injustice are not meant to get the upper hand. Cyrus is not meant to get away with this. You are meant for a better world. There's got to be a better way. Now, I have no idea where that voice came from on that night, that whisper in my heart, but it, it was loud and clear and obvious, so much so that I remember it to this day, decades, decades, several decades later. I, I don't know how old I am anymore. Now, of course, if you go to any playground, you'll hear this same thing uh, eventually when some kid screams, that's not fair. As N.T. Wright says, uh, uh, in, um, our, our sense, our longing for justice comes with the kit of being human, the package of being human. You remember I talked about justice a couple of weeks ago, mishpat and righteousness, justice and righteousness. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but the voice that I heard in my friend's living room on that night is the same whisper that comes to us from the pages of the Bible. It begins quietly, but as you get to the prophets, it gets louder and louder and more clear and more obvious. These justice-wrangling, peace-hungry, visionary prophets, their message went something like this, you were made for better days. The strong oppress the weak, the rich pummel the poor, Nation goes to war against nation, but I, the Lord, have made you for better days, and I will bring those better days to pass. That's essentially the message of the prophets. And the ancient Jews, they had a, a word to describe this, these better days. It was the word shalom. You've heard the word shalom before. Shalom is, is a Hebrew word for peace. Many Jewish people still greet each other with the word shalom. Um, or on, on Saturdays, they might say Shabbat Shalom. You might hear Muslims using the term Salam. Uh, the word Shalom is, we're in a Hebrew study series, and this is our word for today. Its most basic definition is wholeness or completeness, but it expands to translate also peace. In the Bible, God's peace, Shalom, is much more than the absence of war, in the absence of conflict. Shalom is also much more than simply a, a, a state in my soul that comes from a transaction between God and me. Now, biblical shalom includes those things, but for radical Jewish believers, peace was much bigger and much broader than that. Shalom meant not only inner peace, not only the absence of war, it meant wholeness and completeness throughout all creation. It meant the end of injustice. It meant the rich would no longer devour the poor. It meant that all the brokenness would be set right and healed. It meant that people would love one another. Shalom would flow deep and it would flow broad, embracing all creation, including the plants, the animals, and the earth itself. So when we talked about mishpat and zedekah, justice and righteousness. When mishpat and zedekah are fulfilled, are lived out, the consequence, the result of that is shalom, peace for creation. 
Tim Keller, a former pastor and Christian writer, he describes shalom like this. He says, God created all things to be in a beautiful, harmonious, interdependent, knitted, webbed relationship to one another. Just as rightly related physical elements form a cosmos or a tapestry, so rightly related human beings form a community. This interwovenness is what the Bible calls shalom or harmonious peace. Shalom means complete reconciliation, a state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, because all relationships are right, perfect, and filled with joy. And so integral to this biblical concept of shalom is the awareness of the reality that things in their present moment are not that way. That the world is fractured and fragmented. All of creation is, is broken. And so the garden is the image of what that harmonious shalom looked like. The garden image in Genesis chapter 1 where human beings are in right relationship with God, with self, with one another, and with creation. And there's harmony and peace and shalom and there is a worry-free rest. A worry-free rest. But something has gone terribly wrong. Our brother has become our enemy. Our neighbor becomes our rival. Nation goes to war against nation. The lion attacks the lamb. And if you talk to any of our Christian brothers and sisters who come from indigenous communities, they will talk to you for hours about the harmony of creation and how we continue to disrupt that harmony to the detriment of every living thing. There's a wonderful book, if you're looking for a good study on this, called Shalom and the Community of Creation. And it's written by um, uh, an indigenous Christian scholar by the name of Randy Woodley. He was one of my dissertation advisors out of Portland. And it's this wonderful look at biblical shalom from an indigenous Christian perspective. I recommend that to you if you're into that sort of thing. But the biblical vision of shalom is that one day God will finally bring this peace, this wholeness to the world. God will put the pieces back together and restore the garden, shalom, the way God created it and intends for it. And so as the story of the Bible unfolds, God drops these little clues along the way that will awaken our hearts, our minds for this shalom that God promises. Take a look at Psalm 85. The psalmist is writing from a place of longing, a place of, of suffering. The psalm is a prayer in the midst of crisis for the ancient community. God had delivered them uh, from exile. They've returned and they are struggling. They have lost their joy. And the psalmist is crying out to God, praying to God that God will deliver them um, and restore their joy. And it begins with this memory of what God had done before. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You pardoned all their sin. You withdrew your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. This is who you are, God. We know that you are a God of shalom. You've restored us before. You've made us whole. You've provided for our well-being. And then he goes on to share his struggle and his cry for help. Restore us again, O God. 
of our salvation and put away your indignation toward us. It was common for ancient people to interpret negative experiences as wrath. Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your chesed, O Lord. Remember that word? Brie began our series with that word. It means steadfast love or loving kindness. Show us your chesed, your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. And so there's this prayerful yearning for God to restore shalom again, and then he looks to the promise for hope. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak shalom. He will speak peace to his people, to his faithful, to those who turn to him in their hearts. Surely his salvation is at hand for those who fear him. That his kavod, remember that word, that means glory. His glory would dwell in the land. Chesed and faithfulness will meet. Remember zedekah, righteousness and shalom will kiss each other. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground and zedekah will look down from the sky. The Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Zedekah will go before him and will make a path his steps. Something's not right, the psalmist said, but shalom will be restored throughout all the land and you can see how wide and how deep and how broad it is. And for the ancient Jews, the coming of Shalom was entirely wrapped up in a person. Someone was coming, they believed, who would be the Shalom bearer to the world. And this one would open the door to peace. The question was who? And so Isaiah you know this from our Advent, from every year we hear this during the season of Advent. He put it this way, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Shalom. In Isaiah 11, God whispered again, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Well, who is this bearer of shalom? It's not that God will just somehow make everything right, but God will bring in a person, a shalom bearer. Where will he come from? Now, I don't know about you, but for me, you know, I, and maybe this is for many people. When we're 13 or 15 or 23, we, we find ourselves echoing this longing for shalom, this longing for justice, this longing for peace and wholeness. But then what happens is we get kind of older and we get bills that we have to pay and our longing for shalom sort of gets replaced with our need to provide and we kind of settle in to what we describe as real life. Who has time to dream about better days? Who has time to dream about shalom when we're not sure how we're going to make it through this day? We've got bills to pay. We have kids to drive. We have term papers to finish and health problems to resolve and a retirement to plan. Oh, and by the way, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Who has time to dream about better days. 
The list of responsibilities goes on and on and on. Longing for peace, longing for justice, aching for better days. We just don't have the time or energy anymore. After all, if we looked long and hard at the world around us, wouldn't we just get more depressed and cynical? It was my birthday this past week. I turned 42, and I gave myself a birthday present. I decided that I was going to not watch the news on my birthday because I wanted it to be a happy day. It doesn't matter what news station you watch. It's no surprise that we struggle with cynicism in our lives. No wonder we stop longing for shalom. But nevertheless, every once in a while, something cracks our heart open and a voice whispers, you were made for something better. You were made for more. You long for peace because there is a peace giver. Isaiah's times were a lot like ours in some ways and a lot different than ours in other ways. And yet into this violent and seemingly hopeless situation, God sends his peace bearer. But look carefully, Isaiah warns, or you'll miss it. When God brings peace, he does it quietly and with a whisper. That's the way God's shalom comes. It doesn't come with a marching band or a rally or with a bunch of press coverage. It comes in a quiet whisper and it comes to unlikely people. In Isaiah 11, God told us that the Messiah would come like a branch growing out of a dead tree. Out of death and decay, poof, a life, the peace bearer would arise. And then Micah, the prophet Micah tells us in chapter 5 and verse 2, that the coming one, the Messiah, will come from a very quiet place, a place called Bethlehem which means house of bread, a little insignificant rural town in Galilee. And though he comes from an insignificant place, he will nevertheless be God's shalom bearer. Verse 4 in Micah chapter 5 says, He will stand and he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. How big and how broad and how all-encompassing is God's shalom. And so, of course, as we know, 700 years later, in, as is recorded in the New Testament, there is this story about a strange birth. Someone is born, and all of the clues from all of the prophets begin to all point in the same direction. Just as Micah predicted, this one will be born in Bethlehem, as Matthew writes in Matthew chapter 2, and then another witness by the name of Luke proclaims this about this coming one. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of shalom. When he comes, an entire host of angels burst forth and they sing glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace, shalom. The Greek word is eirene, to all whom God favors throughout the earth. Could it be, could it be that this is the one to whom all those clues were pointing for all those th thousands of years? 
And so for 2,000 plus years, followers of Jesus celebrate the coming peace of God intended for his creation, once lost because of our selfishness, our own bent towards injustice, and longed for by all creation has come in Jesus. He's the one the prophets announced who would be our shalom. Well, this might sound a little bit abstract. Like, what, what difference does this promise make in my life? Well, about the time of the turn of the millennium, I was a student in college. I was about, you know, I think I was, yeah, I was 20 years old, 19 or 20 years old. And I was living in, a, in an apartment in Summerland, California. It was a fourplex, two on bottom, two on top. Wonderful place to live. I was going to school. And my next door neighbor uh, was a guy by the name of Dan. Dan was a, was a fun guy. He was kind of a hippie type. Um, he was a bartender at night, and, and he was a pot-smoking agnostic who was really cynical about Christianity. And we would have conversations from time to time, and we hung out sometimes. And, and there was one day, one morning, when I was just sitting out on my balcony, um, having my devotional, reading my Bible, no big deal, just kind of doing um, what I would do. And, and, and on this particular day, Dan walked up to me, he was kind of walking by, and he goes, come on, dude. Why are you a Christian? I mean, what difference does it make? This question has stayed with me for 20 years, probably because I did a terrible job answering it. But if I had the chance today, I think I would respond to Dan with two simple points. First, I need peace with God. As a young person, I wanted peace everywhere else in the world. I had spent a couple months in Cairo. I wanted peace in the Middle East. I wanted peace in the Holy Land. I wanted peace in our inner cities. I wanted peace in my family and in my relationships. But the message of Jesus, the revolution of peace that started on that first Christmas that we celebrated several weeks ago means that peace has to start in my own heart first. I cannot be an effective instrument of peace in the world until I find peace with my Creator. According to the biblical story, everything Jesus did, including living, teaching, dying on the cross, and rising from the dead, was meant to reconcile us with God our Father. And the Bible tells us that our relationship with God was not at peace. We were at war with God. We're not victims. We're, we're, we're rebels who need to lay down our arms and surrender our lives to God in order to find peace. That's why the New Testament declares so wildly and so joyfully that peace has been offered. Remember from Paul in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as a good Jew, Paul understood this concept of shalom. He was steeped in the story of the Hebrew Scriptures in the Bible. And in Isaiah and in Micah, he knew shalom was coming. He longed for it himself, and he resisted 
this peace bearer for some time. He was a violent oppressor of all of those who were following the Prince of Peace until Jesus broke into his heart and revealed to him his love for him and showed him his peace and his promise of, of, of shalom in the world. And so Paul then shifted and he became a bearer of an instrument of Christ's peace in the world. Unless I'm at peace with God, I'm, I'm still part of the problem. I'm not part of the solution. But in Jesus, I can become a peacemaker in this world. I can be an instrument of God's peace. And that's, that's the other difference that Christianity makes in my life. I want to be a, a peacemaker. I want to bring peace into the world starting in my own life and in my family and in my relationships. And that's because of Jesus. I would have no interest in this if it wasn't for Jesus. Following Jesus isn't simply a matter of enjoying peace in my heart or in my relationship with God. Messiah calls us to join his revolutionary movement of bringing shalom to a broken world. And we begin this peacemaking journey in our own homes, in our families, in our neighborhoods. Peace doesn't mean the absence of conflict. It means working through conflict in order to bring wholeness and completeness to our relationships. We stand up for those who have been treated with injustice. We serve at local food banks. We do campus ministries. All of this are ways of bringing shalom into the world. We ask for Messiah to bring peace into our city and into our community and to use us to be instruments of his peace. And so being a peacemaker under Messiah's reign, one last thing, it also propels us to live in hope. By ourselves, left to our own devices, we cannot accomplish this job. We build programs, we build institutions, we start movements and initiatives, we build hospitals and schools, but they tend to run down or grow corrupt. All of our efforts are partial at best, and at worst they're deeply flawed, filled with our own egos and our own unmet needs. But King Jesus, the Messiah, the Shalom Bearer, promises to finish the job. And that's why when people ask, why can't I just bypass this peace with God stuff and just get to the work? It's because the Bible reminds us that we are deeply flawed. We are bent towards selfishness and we are crippled with our limitations. But God empowers us with his spirit and God has a plan that is good and God will finally finish his plan bringing peace into the world. And so notice, too, then, that this call from Jesus to be a peacemaker is incredibly hopeful because God doesn't call the perfect and the unbroken to bring peace into the world, to be his peacemakers. Isaiah 4, 6, and 7 says, God chooses the lame and the outcast. The Messiah brings shalom to the earth, and he calls us to join him. He doesn't call the perfect. He calls the wounded the limpers. And this is really good news for me because I've been limping my whole life. I'm a lifelong limper. And so I just leave you with this question. Do you have peace with God? Do you have peace with God?
Do you know in your heart that you are right with God in Jesus Christ? And having received this peace, do you know God's call on your life to be a peacemaker wherever you go? Respond to God's invitation now. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.